Well, uh, today we are returning to the book of Acts. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was, uh, I actually prepared, I, I guess I'll call it one and a half uh, messages for today. I, on uh, Acts chapter 14, where we are, but also on, uh, on the uh, psalm that we looked at last Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Because whenever... Um, Whenever we talk about, uh, uh, oh, I'll just use the psalm. I'll say the psalms in our, in our uh, Tuesday night and Wednesday morning class, or whatever we're, whatever we're discussing, we have a lot of interaction. And, I, and uh, I'll tell you, I'm taking notes on Tuesday nights and Wednesday morning uh, because uh, I really uh, uh, get a lot out of it, you know? And so that always then wants me to... Then I'm uh, thinking to myself, oh, this would be great for everybody to hear, you know. Uh, so uh, we're basically going to be in Acts chapter 14, but uh, as is often the case, there is a particular application to uh, the psalm that we looked at uh, last Tuesday. Well, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But if you have a, a Bible with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 14. It's been a little while since we... Uh, have been in Acts, and uh, as you know, <clears throat> the way Acts is laid out, we read about the exploits of the apostles beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and uh, then to uh, what we would consider the remotest part of the earth, outside of Eretz Israel, outside of the uh, outside of the land. We read about uh, Peter and John, uh, those jailbirds, you know, in the early chapters, uh, getting in trouble uh, and, uh, and then giving uh, excellent uh, messages of the gospel. And we learned a lot ab about, about that. We, we uh, saw how the Hellenistic uh, Jewish community heard the message of Yeshua. Uh, we, we read about Stephen and his speech and then we read about Paul, who was the persecutor of the Messiah followers, one to be greatly feared if you were a Jewish believer. Uh, and he has uh, an encounter with God uh, like, uh, you know, like no other, we might say. And, and he comes to faith and he becomes zealous for the Lord. And we, we see uh, uh, how Gentiles begin to hear the message. Interestingly enough, uh, it begins uh, with uh, Peter and Cornelius, but then we read about amazing things happening in Antioch, and Barnabas goes there, and then he gets Paul and brings Paul to Antioch, uh, and, uh, which is in Syria, right, outside of the land, uh, that uh, you had uh, this congregation, uh, this very significant congregation in Syria, uh, and uh, then Barnabas and Paul are sent out, right? They're sent out um, to what we would call today Turkey, basically to Turkey, a number of different cities and so on. And uh, we read uh, some amazing things. We read, if you remember, uh, when they went out, it was uh, in, in the way Luke wrote it, it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then this um, man by the name of Sergius Paulus, uh, a non-Jewish uh, magistrate comes to believe. Uh, next thing you know, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and um, uh, and so 
Uh, now we're in chapter 14. Uh, and uh, uh, if we go back to the very end of chapter uh, uh, 13, we see uh, how uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, had been bringing uh, the, uh, the message uh, and uh, how they received a lot of uh, pushback, right? A lot of pushback uh, from, the, uh, from the Jewish uh, community. Uh, and then uh, we read um, this, beginning in verse uh, 50 of chapter 13. It says, But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out from their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy uh, with the Holy Spirit. So uh, being persecuted was not uh, a downer for them. Uh, it kind of energized them, uh, it seems, in the sense that, that they, they realized uh, you know, that, God was at, that God was at work. Uh, and, uh, and it's interesting, you know, it says they shook the dust off their feet and so on. But now when they come to Iconium, again, if you look on a map, it would be in Turkey. All of, all of these uh, towns are not far from each other uh, in what would be modern-day Turkey. All right. It came about, verse 1 of chapter 14, it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks, and that just goes to show you, in chapter 13, they were shaking their feet off. They said, now we're going to the Gentiles. But uh, here they come to a new town. Old habits are hard to break, evidently, right? Uh, so they go to the synagogue. Why do they go to a synagogue? I would suggest because, because they were Jews. And you have to always remember, it's so important to remember that for Gentiles to believe at this particular period of time, was still something very new, very unusual, and very controversial. Okay? Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so, belief in Yeshua was understood to be this Jewish thing. Uh, a, a Jewish religious belief. And, uh, uh, and, and so, the entree that Paul and Barnabas had into a city was through the Jewish quarter was through the Jewish community. Uh, and so, uh, it should not come as a surprise. Uh, so it wasn't, but it wasn't only strategy. It wasn't only strategy. You know, we read in the book of Romans, in the 10th chapter, in the first verse, these words, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul did not hate his kinsmen according to the flesh. He loved them. So there was both a strategic reason for going to the synagogue first, but also, also granted a personal reason uh, going there first. Uh, and so uh, that should not come as a surprise. All right. So they spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both Jews and Greeks. But then we read, but the Jews who disbelieved, which is a very interesting word, by the way, 
who disobeyed, we, we might say, or disbelieved, I stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against uh, the brethren. The reason you have the word disbelieved is because it's referring to Jewish people that were rejecting the message, that were not ignorant of the message, that had heard the message and were not believing it, and were being, frankly, were being very uh, antagonistic. Uh, uh, toward the message. That's why it uses the word disbelief. Okay? But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. This is a fascinating verse, by the way. Uh, uh, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. When you read that, that uh, verse very carefully, like a lot of places in the book of Acts, Yeshua is portrayed as living, living and acting and, and, uh, I, and present. And when you read this carefully, you see that. So they spent a long time, Paul and Barnabas speaking boldly, relying on the Lord, and the Lord is bearing witness to the word of His grace, you know, through them, through them, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. It was not about them. They were the messengers. Uh, but uh, Yeshua is alive. Uh, when Yeshua rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, <clears throat> and poured out the Ruach, the pouring out of the Ruach is the way in which Yeshua is here, is present in our midst via the Ruach. And it is very important. We tend to focus on the Spirit being present, which is true, but, we, but it's important to understand that the role of the Ruach, in a way, is the vehicle by whom Yeshua is present. As it says, for example, in Galatians, He dwells within us. Yeshua dwells within us. How does Yeshua dwell within us? Via the Ruach HaKodesh. And so we should never minimize the presence of Yeshua in our midst to this day. Uh, and, uh, and so Luke brings that out in his narration of these events very clearly that there, right there in Iconium, Yeshua was at work. And he is indeed at work through you and I. When we share the good news, uh, when we demonstrate the reality of God, Yeshua is present. And our desire is for people to see Yeshua and to encounter Him. Not encounter us, not tell us how wonderful we are, or, uh, or, or any of that, but, but that we need to like, get out of the way. We, 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 are, uh, we are demonstrating the reality of Yeshua. He is doing the work through us, just as He did the work through them. That has not changed, you know, uh, uh, to this day. And so we see here, but nevertheless, but the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. 
One thing's for sure is that the city was in an uproar over the good news. Uh, and uh, this was a pretty big deal. But they faced opposition. Clearly, having opposition was not something uh, that was considered negative. It was considered that's what happens when light encounters the darkness. There's going to be uh, opposition. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we see here, uh, and when uh, an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and, they, and the, surrounding, uh, the surrounding region. And there they continued uh, to preach the gospel. All right, so they were not deterred, uh, but they, uh, they didn't hang around. When they saw that it was very difficult, they adapted to the situation and they went to a different city, but they kept doing the same thing. They were not deterred. Their mission, their goal was to share the good news. And uh, this persecution did not keep them from sharing the good news. In fact, what the persecution did was spread the message, right? I, I, the, the, because as they moved around, uh, more people heard the message. So the persecution I, uh, caused the gospel to move forward, right? Then it says, And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the multitudes saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, uh, regarding this uh, healing, when they come to this new town, uh, a lame man is healed. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you've been around the New Covenant block a few times, you know that healing lame people, you, you've read about people who are lame being healed before. And uh, Luke points this out because it's sort of like a, you might say, a, a New Covenant trademark of uh, this is what happens, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of a sign that this is the new covenant. We read in Isaiah 35 and Jeremiah 31 and also in Isaiah 33 and in other places that there will be a day when the lame will walk. There'll be a day when the lame will walk. So these particular miracles are accentuated because they were like a sign. Ah, the lame are walking. Ah, New Covenant. Oh, the beginning, the inauguration of uh, the, uh, the Messianic uh, kingdom. Uh, and so this is accentuated. A lame man walks. Now these pagans, they see this happens. Uh, they see this happening and look what they do. You talk about not getting it, <laughs> right? So they, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices sacrifice with the, with the crowds. They thought, wow, you know, they, they, uh, they, they put it in their own pagan context. You know, what did they know from Jewish, right? What did they know from Israel? What did they know from Jerusalem or the Messiah or the kingdom of God? They didn't know anything, right? So they see this happening and they did what they thought. They attributed, they were religious people. This is sort of like um, a little bit of um, the uh, introduction to what we'll see in Acts 17, you know, at Athens. Sort of the same kind of uh, uh, thing. These are religious people, right? Uh, and so uh, they, uh, they understand it in their own context. But what do Paul and Barnabas do? But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd. In other words, they're grieving. No, 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 no. This is all wrong. You got it all wrong, right? Uh, and, uh, and what do they say? Uh, men, why are you doing these things? Uh, which could also probably be translated, cut it out. <laughs> you know, like stop, you know. Uh, we are also men of the same nature as you. Isn't that a great statement? We are men just like you, you know. I, uh, very important. And we preach the good news to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay? I, who, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and, and all uh, that is in them. And so uh, they, they tell them about the living God. In other words, kind of like in Acts 17, you know, the unknown God. Here it's Zeus and Hermes, and uh, Paul and Barnabas have the audacity to say, cut it out, we're preaching to you about the one true God who made everything, the Creator, and they appeal to creation right here. They appeal to creation, okay? They're not quoting messianic promises. Uh, they, they're not uh, saying that Yeshua is a fulfillment of the, of the prophets, but something that these people could relate to, that he is the creator, the one and only creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is a living God. And then it says, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts uh, with food uh, and gladness. All right. So, that, you know, it's very interesting. He appeals to uh, the seasons, the weather. I, uh, that God is the, is the creator, and that this is the witness. Doesn't this kind of remind you? Remember, Paul is saying these things. And it's very interesting, when you see in the speeches and acts, when he says, that, says these things, they echo much of, the, of what he writes in his letters. And so, uh, in the book of Romans, uh, you know, um, 
in the uh, uh, first chapter, we read, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. So here in uh, Acts chapter 14, he appeals to what to how God interacts with every human being through the seasons and, and the weather, uh, and that he is the creator uh, of the heavens and the earth and everything in between, right? And, and of course, um, in chapter 2 of Romans, in uh, verse 1, therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, in that if you judge another, you condemn yourself. But he says you are uh, without excuse, and then a little uh, farther down, uh, he says uh, here in uh, verse, there is in verse uh, 11 and 12 of Romans chapter 2, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish with a, yeah, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. Uh, and so on. So the point is, he's saying you are without excuse. All are without excuse. Uh, and so he's so Paul now in Acts chapter 14 is telling them good news. You can know this one uh, who is uh, the creator of heavens and earth. This is the one we're talking about, uh, the creator of heavens and earth. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that he doesn't mention Yeshua anywhere here? He doesn't mention the resurrection. He doesn't mention Yeshua. Now, it could very well be that, as we'll see, they were interrupted, you know, and uh, were not able to finish what they were saying, but it tells us something about how they share the message with the pagans. And this is also true in Acts 17, as we'll see, that they had to lay a foundation about who is the God of Israel. You know, it wasn't just, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, we reduce the whole thing to, here, here, say this prayer, right? Say this prayer and you'll be all set. No, these pagan people had to understand, you might say they had to understand the Shema. You know what I mean? They needed to understand who the God of Israel is and what it means to embrace him. Uh, it is in that context that we can then appreciate the coming of the Messiah, right? Uh, and uh, so that is, um, you know, very interesting. But what is also very interesting is when he says, and the generations gone by, he permitted, uh, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way but he didn't, he didn't leave without a witness. That's really very important, okay? In other words, this tells us, uh, when he says, let the nations go their own way, that the nations are not the chosen people, that Israel is a chosen people, 
and God has a unique relationship with the chosen people, but it didn't mean that he left all the nations without a witness. You see? I, very, very important and because Paul is addressing the nations. But I think it is important uh, right here to pause uh, for a second and understand a little something about this issue of the generations going by permitted the nations to go their own way. So, you know, last week uh, on Tuesday night and Wednesday, we looked at Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Psalm 48 is a great little psalm. Uh, and whenever we go to Israel, of course, we have to do a devotional on Psalm 48 because it has a lot to do with Jerusalem, has a lot to do with the city of Jerusalem. Uh, now, we're not going to uh, go through the entire Psalm 48. Uh, however, you do read here at the beginning of it and at the end of it something kind of interesting. It says, Great is the Lord and great let it be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Some of you now have a song going through your head, right? Uh, there's a famous, famous song uh, about that, right? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. So, of course, it's a song of praise to God, uh, perhaps after a victory, right? But it accentuates Jerusalem, the city of our God, the holy mountain, the, the, the mount where the temple is, right? Beautiful to see, beautiful in high, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the centerpiece uh, of the earth in Jerusalem, right? Is Mount Zion. Now, in the far north is a, uh, I'm going to suggest, probably not the best translation. Uh, actually, uh, probably the best translation would be this, in the height of Zaphon. Zaphon was the uh, uh, Canaanite Mount Olympus. You, you know, uh, uh, Zaphon is where the gods would dwell on top of the mountain, Right? Uh, and, uh, and so it's kind of interesting uh, that you have Sion and Safon. Uh, perhaps uh, Sion is a, uh, the Hebrew concept of, you know, God dwelling on the mountain. God dwelling on the mountain. It could also, it could also mean like a memorial stone, like a visible stone uh, uh, of, of memorial. But it is uh, really very interesting, uh, the city of the great king. Now, uh, just pausing here about a Mount Zion, Mount Zion. Uh, you know, uh, when you think about it, uh, and people have written uh, on this, John Levinson has a whole book about it, uh, you know, Zion and, uh, or a Sinai and Zion, you know. Uh, that God, uh, God makes himself known to the people primarily in two spots. One is Mount Sinai, and the other one is Mount Zion, right? Uh, uh, he and Israel encounters God at Mount Sinai and then travels with the people. But once they enter Eretz Yisrael, once they enter the land, uh, the traveling ends. And uh, uh, God uh, 
it, so to speak, dwells at Mount uh, Sinai. Uh, and uh, th what's very interesting about this psalm is it makes a big deal out of the people encountering God by what they see and where they're located. It's really very, very interesting. It makes a great message in and of itself, but that's uh, something for another time. Then at the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, in verse 13 and 14, or verses 12 and 13, we'll say, 12 and 13, walk about Zion and go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces, that you may tell it to the next generation. Basically, what that is saying is walk around Jerusalem and meditate on it, look at it, walk on the ramparts, you know, you can tell this is why we talk when we go to Israel, we talk, we talk about this psalm, right? And the idea is as you walk around Jerusalem and as you see all of this, you know, you encounter God by, by what you see. It's really a very interesting psalm about worshiping God, about how we worship God. But the point I wanted to make, you're saying, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 14? Or did you just want to insert it in uh, anyway? Uh, what, it, what it has to do with uh, Acts 14 is from time immemorial, God made himself known in Jerusalem, okay? That was like the, uh, the ground zero of where God, God is everywhere, of course, and, and all of that, but people would have to come to Jerusalem, right? The primary place of worship, right? Well, you read in the Gospel of John, in the fourth chapter, the famous passage of Yeshua interacting with this Samaritan woman. All right, and, and uh, you know, uh, she doesn't really understand uh, who he is, right? Uh, and uh, we read here in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mount, that's Mount Gerizim, another place that we go to in Israel, another devotional that we give. <laughs> All right? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. In other words, the mountain, worshiping God at a mountain. This is how people understood it. Because, you know, it touches the sky. It's like where the sky and the land touch is on top of a mountain, right? Okay. Yeshua said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice he says, you worship that which you do not know. This echoes very much what Paul is saying uh, to, these, to these people. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about the creator of heaven and earth. We know who he is. He is the living God, right? But then he says, so then he says but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in, in spirit and in truth. He's not saying that the significance of Jerusalem is erased or anything like that. But he's making the point that it's not about going to the place. It is about the presence of God 
via the Ruach who dwells uh, within us. And that is, that is what is beginning to happen. That is part of the, the inauguration of the new uh, covenant, you see. Uh, and now I have to say this so that we don't misunderstand uh, either uh, Psalm 48 and its nor its relationship to John 4. Jerusalem still is uh, a holy city, right? And, it's, and uh, remember, a, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the mystery of the kingdom and where Yeshua was telling parables about, you know, about the mustard seed and so on and so forth, that uh, today the presence of the, the Messianic kingdom is invisible. And wherever we are is the presence of the Lord. But the Bible is pretty clear that the day is going to come when Yeshua is going to appear again. And he's not going to dot the I uh, at Ohio Stadium, right? Uh, he's not going to show up at Times Square on New Year's Eve. Uh, he's not going to be in Los Angeles. Uh, he's not going to be in any other world capital. He's going to return to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, you see? Uh, and, uh, and sit on his throne and the nations will come to Jerusalem again and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, right? Uh, but, one, but right now, but in these days, in these end times, as it's been for the last 2,000 years, that now, this is what Paul is saying, this is what he meant when he says, in the generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways. The nations are not a holy place, Right? but in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, but, now, but now, these uh, Jewish apostles are going to the nations because they don't have to go to Jerusalem. And as we'll see in the next chapter, they don't have to go to Jerusalem, they don't have to become Jewish uh, in order to embrace uh, the Messiah. Uh, and so that's what he means. Uh, you know, uh, Psalm 48 is a very excellent psalm to point out that the centrality of, of uh, Jerusalem. And I think personally, I think it's a very uh, poignant thing that when you go there today, it's in, it's in ruins. Uh, you, you know, it's in ruins. We, we see um, stones that have been excavated. Uh, we do not yet see a new temple. You know, that day will come. But it just goes to show you, uh, uh, you know, the fact that this message is for Jews and the nations uh, uh, today. Very important. Okay, so just to uh, finish this up here, all right. Uh, and even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. They, they, there was chaos, we could say, in the city. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So in other words, Jewish people, people came from other cities where they had been and, and kind of followed them there to, uh, you know, to, uh, to make a big tumult and, uh, so, that, so that people would not uh, listen to the message. These people... We might uh, say, oh, how horrible they were. 
But you have to understand them. They were like Paul before he had his encounter with God. Thinking, I am protecting the covenant. These people are apostates. These people are heretics. Uh, they clearly were confused and did not understand the message. Like Paul says, you know, my heart's desire for them is for them to be saved, to be delivered. Uh, you know, they have a knowledge of God, but or they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Real, so you see it happening, happening here. When we see this, what that should do to our heart is, is tug at our heart and say, oh, we need to share the message uh, with our kinsmen according to the, with the Jewish people, we, uh, you know, and uh, how important uh, that is. And so they stoned Paul, dragged him out, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to a Derby. Right? Now, what's really interesting, it says that after this, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? This is what they told them. They didn't tell them, hey, now you're on easy street. Uh, you know, now everything's going to be okay. Once you know the Lord, the Lord has a wonderful life planned for you, uh, and it's just going to be fantastic. And what will God do in your life? What will it be? How will he use you? No, they say, through many tribulations, uh, you know, we enter uh, the kingdom of God. In other words, there's going to be persecution. And um, this is uh, quite clear from a number of uh, passages, you know, that we, um, that, that we read about uh, in the scriptures. You know, in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 3 Paul, Paul, in sharing this with Timothy, references this experience. This experience that we read about in Acts. So in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you read in verse 10. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Messiah Yeshua, there's kind of a chance you might be persecuted. No, it doesn't say that. It says, will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. If you don't expect persecution, then you don't get it, <laughs> okay? It's really, really important to understand that, that when light hits darkness, it's just like, you know, when you're watching uh, the weather on TV and uh, you, got a, you got this map of the United States and you got the big H somewhere in the middle of the country and then you got, then you got the big L coming, you know, maybe from the south. When that H hits the L... It all breaks loose, right? Yes, it does, right? Uh, because that's when you get your thunderstorms and you get your real bad weather. 
uh, you know, when the high hits the low, bam, right? Uh, when light interacts with darkness, bam, and that's what happens. You know, in Philippians chapter 1, we read at the end of the first chapter, Paul says to the believers at Philippi, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of deliverance for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now uh, here um, to be in me. Remember, he's writing this from, from prison, you know, and, uh, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this great passage where uh, Paul says this. He says, um, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, this is in chapter 4 and verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power of God, uh, the power may be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Yeshua, that the life of Yeshua may be manifested in our body. And so he's persecuted, and it hurts, and he doesn't like it, but he is undaunted. He knows what his mission and his calling is. And we should expect that same kind of pushback. Uh, and it should not cause us to say, oh, you see, it's all of the devil. And, and that. No, that's not, what he, that's not what the Bible says. No, it demonstrates, wow, we must be doing something right. Right? Uh, and this was his attitude. And this is why he could push on. And this is why he didn't get down and depressed and, and stop. But he kept going. And not only that, but we see what he does. He doubles back, and he goes back to the places where he's been to encourage them because he's concerned about them. He doesn't want them to be, have a misunderstanding or to fall away from the faith, but to realize, hey, you're going to be persecuted, but know that God is indeed with you. That making, He's making disciples. This is called discipleship. That's what's happening there. And then finally it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every congregation, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, and so they went back, they raised up elders, they helped to set up, so to speak, these congregations, uh, these messianic uh, 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 you know, congregation, congregations of the Messiah uh, in these different uh, locations. And then they kept going, but they were undaunted, right? And they knew that God had called them to the Gentiles to bring this message to the Gentiles. And this was radical, bringing this message to the Gentiles. And it says, and when they had appointed, oh, I know. Now in verse 24, and they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, 
they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. In other words, they went back. They went back to Antioch, right? And uh, what we see at the end of the chapter is how now they testify that God has opened up a door among the Gentiles. They're not concerned about the, the problems. The glass is half full, my friends, right? They're not concerned. About, you won't believe what they did to me. Ay, 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 It was horrible. And then this, and then, and then this happened. And No, because it wasn't about them. They were rejoicing because God had opened up a door to bring the message to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so what we have here in chapter 14 is a very nice narrative of, of the history of how this was unfolding. Now, just when you think it's time for rejoicing, they come back to Antioch and they say, well, you know, God has opened up a door for the Gentiles. This, this is going to lead to a crisis, right? And that's what chapter 15 is about. The crisis of what do we do with the Gentiles, right? Uh, do they need to become Jews? This was a whole new thing. There, no, there was no model for this. There was no like hundreds of years of writings on this. Uh, there were no scholars working on this, right? This was new and different, and we'll see what happens. But what we do know is, boy, God was gracious. The Word of God never stopped. Nothing uh, could stop Paul and Barnabas. Uh, no persecution could halt the preaching of the, of the good news. Uh, you know, no social situation uh, could halt the good news. And we need to take that into our world and say, whatever is going on, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing will cause the good news to, to cease. I, the only, uh, you know, the only, the only way that that happens is if we stop. The only way that happens is if we don't fulfill the calling. Can you imagine if Paul and Barnabas said, I, you know, that's all I can stand and I can't stand it no more. Enough persecution. I can't take it anymore. I'm building tents. I'm going to work in the back of a hardware store. I don't want anybody to bother me. I can't take it anymore. No, because of the power of God living within them, they kept going. They kept going. And because of that, they saw fruit. And this, this, this was the seed of the worldwide proliferation of the gospel, of the good news. These were several people making a difference where they were. Little did they realize the difference that it would make for thousands of years. And so for us, when we share the good news with a person here and a person there, we are part of what God is doing in this world. So may we be encouraged and recognize that this is a marvelous time. This is a marvelous opportunity to demonstrate through both word and deed the reality of the living God, right? And uh, may we be encouraged uh, in that way. And one by one by one, 
one person at a time, making a difference, sharing the good news. This is indeed what God has called us to. So let's pray. Lord uh, God, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged. Lord, thank you that we're living in a day when we don't have to go to Jerusalem to find you or to interact with you or to worship you. Whether we're a Samaritan uh, or we're Jewish or we are from China or Afghanistan or Argentina, uh, wherever we may be in this world, Lord, we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We do look forward to the day, Lord, when you will dwell back in Jerusalem. We look forward to the day when all the nations will come, celebrate Sukkot, you know, and, uh, and worship you, Lord. And God, I pray that, that we would indeed, uh, uh, as we take it all in, share it with future generations, as we read in our Torah portion and also in Psalm 48. Lord, may we pour ourselves and this message into all of the young people around us, Lord. And uh, may we uh, uh, encourage all the people around us to keep going and to keep moving forward and to have our priorities right, Lord. And uh, may you be uh, our center of attention. And as we read uh, today in Hebrews chapter 11, with such a great cloud of witnesses, of people who were faithful in the midst of great difficulty and didn't only see the, the fulfillment in their own lifetime, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, and not be distracted by everything else, but keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord. And may we find encouragement and fruitfulness in the work you've called us to do. We pray in Messiah's name.